The following program is a proud member of the Palaver family of podcasts. Check out all the shows over at palaver.com. That's P-A-L-A-V-R.com. You're listening to The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema with Big Willie and the Samurai, bringing class to trash since Trenchard-Smith, and I wanted to put this intro at the beginning of the real intro to the interview because in the interview itself, you'll hear our two contest listeners for the uh, the Trailers from Hell autographed DVDs from uh, Mr. Brian Trenchard-Smith and Mr. Joe Dante. So if those two listeners could, send, please send me their address to uh, midnightcinema.gmail.com. I'll get those out to them. Now onward and upward with the show and our interview with Mr. Brian Trenchard-Smith. All right, everybody. Welcome to a special bonus episode of the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. I'm your host, the Samurai. Across the borders from me, my borders, the border from me is my good pal, Big Willie. And we have a very special guest with us today, uh, a filmmaker we both very much admire, uh, Mr. Brian Trenchard-Smith. Hello. <laughs> Happy to be aboard. <laughs> It's really great to have you on the show, Brian. Uh, as I said uh, there in the intro, we are both uh, huge fans of your work and stuff, and we were extremely flattered when you uh, called our show and uh, left a voicemail and stuff. It was extremely. Uh, it was one of those moments where doing this as film fans, Will and I, it really felt rewarding. Uh, so I hope that doesn't uh, blow up your ego too much or anything. But we do adore your films. Well, thank you. No, no, my my ego is is. Uh, Fairly under control. You know, I have it tethered uh, to a large weight on the floor. Uh, but no, I mean, hey, uh, every filmmaker should listen to those that like his films, and uh, um, because you know, you actually learn you learn something from what people like about your films and what people maybe don't like. Yeah, I think that's a pretty fair statement, Brian. I do want to say one thing because uh, I don't know when I'll have the chance to say it again. Um, I've I've been in the same room as you before, maybe you know ten feet away actually um, at the Midnight Madness at the Toronto International Film Festival a few years ago, when you were there to talk about Not Quite Hollywood. Right. Uh, oh. Yeah, my my wife was nine months pregnant at the time, and uh, we had come to see the screening. Very excited, of course, um, and they let us into the theater ahead of everyone else uh, because they felt terrible that my wife was as pregnant as she was, uh, so they let us in to sit down, and we sat down, and I turned. Over my right shoulder, and I see the name on the seat, Brian Trenchard Smith. And I, I, you know, hurriedly tap my wife. Oh my god, oh my god, Brian Trenchard Smith sitting right behind us. <laughs> so it was a pretty, pretty exciting moment. So it's kind of come full circle now that we've had a chance to interview you. So that's, oh, it's kind that, of great. That's great. I, I'm surprised that uh, your wife didn't give birth during the turkey shoot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no kidding. Enough to stimulate anything. Uh, <laughs> anyway, and now, boy, girl. Uh, boy, we have two boys, actually. Two boys like me. Ah, great. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. So we're uh, never a dull moment, as you can certainly attest to. It's yeah. uh, We always talk about how it's difficult sometimes to keep our show on schedule uh, with 
the three boys. Oftentimes, I mean, I've changed diapers on the air. Rick's had to wrestle his boy on the air, kind <laughs> yes. of. It's uh, one of those things. Yes. All I'll have to do is drink a cup of coffee. My goodness. <laughs> well, but I tell you, you never stop being a parent. Uh, and I tell you, it's a great joy when that uh, when those boys get to be a bit older and you start showing them the films that really turned you on uh, as a kid. Uh, it, it was a great pleasure for me when uh, my my boys were you know uh, you know thirteen and uh, you know, and ten to uh, take them to a seventy millimeter uh, remastered presentation of Alfred Hitchcock's Vista Vision film uh, Vertigo, and uh, that was the film that sort of got me yeah made made me think you know. That's what I want to do for a living when I saw it at 13. So it was great that they had just done a, uh, they remastered the original VistaVision negative uh, and uh, uh, were putting it on. And I said, yeah, guys, this you've got to see. And they were mesmerized from that you know, great Saul Bass opening title onwards. That's and so, yeah. And I took him to Spartacus and, uh, you know, another film from my you know, very early teens. Uh, and uh, so you will have that pleasure ahead of you uh, in however many years. Oh, yeah. It's something I know Rick and I have talked about a lot. Like, for example, as obsessive as this sounds, with each of uh, my sons, I, I felt the strain of trying to pick a first film to watch with them. I know they wouldn't really get anything from it, but with one son it was Singing in the Rain, the other one it was Johnny Guitar, more for the colors than anything. But... You know, yeah, just I know we can't wait till they're about, you know, like you said, 13, 14, so we can kind of really share our, our passion of film with them. Yeah, I mean, I, when I took them to Terminator 2, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, my younger son uh, was nine, and, you know, he, he was clearly reacting in his seat as the mayhem built. I said, uh, you know, Alex, is this, uh, is, is this too scary for you? And uh, he just said breathlessly, this is the most exciting film I've ever seen. <laughs> yes. I mean, you live for those moments when, when cinema has that you know, totally visceral connection with, uh, with an audience. So uh, yeah, that, that, that was great. So you'll have to, you have to pick your films in a few years' time. Yes. I think we're already accumulating our list, actually. So we're working on that as we go. All right, uh, I guess we'll go ahead and hop into the interview process of the interview. <laughs> so we had a nice little introduction there. Uh, Will, do you... Interrogation. Do you, <laughs> yes, the interrogation part of the interview. Let me turn No one on. expects the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> yeah. uh, Will, do you want to go ahead and kick it off with the first question stuff? I'm going to get another drink real quick, and I'll be right back. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Uh, and, of course, I think you kind of answered this a little bit, Brian, uh, in, in that, that discussion we just had. Um, and the first question, I think, is an obvious one for a lot of people. It would, would be, how did you get into film uh, as a career? And and once you got into film, what led you down the genre film path? And I know you directed us to a blog. Did you want us to just simply direct people to that, or did you want to touch on it for a well, moment? So, but I, I think certainly that blog can provide uh, a, a concise uh, uh, story as to you know that sort of eureka light bulb illuminating over the head moment when uh, I realized that uh, in five years' time I would be uh, going out in the world and trying to earn a living. That's what adults did, and uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I it suddenly occurred to me that people make these things that I so enjoy so much and get paid for them. So. 
it was simple. Okay, that's what I'll do. I'll make films. Uh, so, so uh, and it was my naive belief, of course, that the, that would be easy. Um, and in, in truth, really, it has been a whole lot easier for me than, than many people because I guess by by luck and you know maybe good judgment, I found myself in the right place at the right time uh, at several stages uh, in my life. Uh, when I left school, I didn't go to film school. Um, I, yeah, I could have gone to university and continued to learn to, to study classics. Uh, and I went, yeah, frankly, 10 years of Latin and Greek, uh, much though I love the history, I'd had enough of the language. Uh, and uh, I wanted to get out in the world. And, but in England, the film union operated a closed shop you couldn't, you know, you couldn't be hired if there was, an, uh, let's say, a third assistant director of '93 still on the union books. So uh, this is a restrictive trade practice that has now gone away. Mm -hmm. uh, but at, uh, at, back in the Stone Age, in, in my day in England, uh, that's what I faced at 18 when I left school. So I was, I managed to get a job fairly quickly under the counter, so to speak, uh, just getting. Um, seven pounds a week um, at a, uh, a, a small distributor taking sensor cuts out of uh, movies, and uh, but I could tell that you know it was going to be a very long, slow process in the UK. In those days, if you uh, you could only get a union card by joining a laboratory and inhaling formic acid for a couple of years, uh, and then you know, then you were you had a, you had a card, and then you had to wait two years in that job before you could change your grade and become the lowest form of animal life in the cutting room. And you know when you're 18, 19, and you you know you've made a couple of eight millimeter films at school, and you think really that the world should be offering offering uh, offering you. Uh, Ben Hur too, uh, <laughs> and, and there's this sort of uh, yeah. The, <laughs> so uh, I so thought, well, look, you know, they don't have uh, a union, so to speak, controlling employment in Australia. They don't have a film industry either, but they do have television and three, you know, three commercial networks and one government station, and uh, you know, they do make some drama. Um, I'll go to the land of my father and see if I can get in there because that's obviously probably going to be a faster route. And, you know, that was probably one of the smartest decisions I've made in my life. And three weeks after, you know, sailing to Australia on, on board the Achille Lauro, uh, which uh, incidentally, you know, was hijacked by terrorists, caught fire and sank at some point. But I had nothing to do with that. <laughs> uh, it, 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 uh, the... You know, three weeks after landing in Sydney, I had a job at Channel 10 cutting news because I had forged a reference for myself uh, on a company's letterhead that I'd worked for briefly, saying I was the greatest thing since sliced bread, <laughs> and um, said that I could edit film, I could do this, I could do anything. And by the time you know they could have gotten around to finding out that I knew nothing, I had taught myself uh, what I needed to know. I mean, editing news is both, you know, a, a pretty basic uh, editorial uh, challenge, but, but can be done with finesse. Uh, and I, I, I made top editor within 15 months in the news division uh, and then moved on to making uh, station promos. 
and uh, that has been a big influence in my life. I've always been interested in why. Why did they choose this bit as opposed to that bit? Uh, and uh, so uh, that the I, I thought the station promos were rather dull, and in those days, you, if you volunteered for something, uh, people gave you a shot to see if you could actually do it. So uh, I started making promos for Channel 10, and then Channel 9 promptly stole me, which was very nice of them, uh, and, and a bump in salary. Uh, and uh, I eventually you know, went around the world on a sort of sabbatical and hooked up with an American company who looked at some of the promos I'd made and hired me to make trailers for feature films in back in the UK. Um, and for a couple of years, I made trailers for Hammer Horrors and Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in the West and uh, oh, Lindsay oh. Addison's If and uh, oh. and Enzo Castellari's uh, Kill Them All and Come Back Alone. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. Um, and uh, so that... In turn, uh, the Australians missed me, uh, and they sent a message saying, "Please come back and run the uh, the, net, the promotions for the five station network as opposed to just Sydney." And I said, "I will if you let me m- make programs as well." And that was my transition from, say, the you know promotional side of the business to production. Uh, and uh, sort of, I, I taught myself on the job. Uh, mm. Initially, you know, filming sequences for beauty quest pageants and then uh, fashion documentary. And then I, I started coming up with ideas of my own and they, you know, they let me do them. So I, I made a, uh, a one-hour TV special about four Australian soldiers who won the Victoria Cross, the British, you know, the, the Commonwealth highest award for gallantry um, in Vietnam. Uh, and uh, I did re- battle reenactments as intercut with interviews, and that that really sort of got me on the the, the drama path. Got my first foot in the door there, and uh, so it went on from there. Uh, left Channel Nine to start my own little production company, made and, and initially sold stuff I made back to them. Uh, and then uh, I made an award-winning documentary called The Stuntmen, which I think you can find uh, on uh, the Code Red DVD of Stunt Rock. So that would be my, my earliest work that's probably available for public consumption or indigestion or whatever. <laughs> uh, and uh, you will see me t- set my naked arm on fire in it, uh, thinking I can hold it for longer than I, than I actually do. Uh-huh. Uh, but uh, I, a moment of minor embarrassment which I thought was amusing enough to include in the film but it won an award at uh, the Sydney Film Festival and I had a suddenly I had a, an action calling card um, uh, that uh, enabled me to get my first uh, big film which is The Man from Hong Kong and incidentally I don't know when this is going to air but uh, trailers from hell this week are featuring my uh, Man from Hong Kong trailer, which I made myself, of course, because I made my own trailers as well as uh, a lot of other filmmakers' trailers at the time of the Australian film industry renaissance. Uh, <laughs> and uh, 
Um, but I, anyway, Trailers from Hell have featured that 1975 trailer, which I introduce uh, somewhat lengthily, and then narrate over. So um, it, that that will provide some some interesting anecdotes as well uh, for your for your listeners. And Trailers from Hell is a great site yes. uh, because it has we've got about over 500 trailers on it now. So if you're a, an Uber movie geek, uh, a cinema nostalgia fan, then you will yeah you'll be in seventh heaven because there are all these films prior to 1978, 79, um, some quite iconic pictures uh, and some really great filmmakers, many, many film, most filmmakers more illustrious, let's say, than I, uh, are um, commenting upon uh, favorites of theirs. Uh, I, I've got about, I've got five online now and I think there's another six waiting to be scattered throughout uh, uh, the coming months. Anyway, so that was a long answer to a short question as to how I sort of affected a transition from, um, you know, just a, a schoolboy enthusiast to, um, you know, uh, to, to being a filmmaker via the, you know, the useful and not very frequent um, path of promos and trailers. And I'm just trying to think who else. And that Howard Deutsch, for instance, uh, who's done a lot of good comedies, um, married to Leah Thompson, whom I just directed, and this is how I, I know. Uh, Howard Deutsch uh, was a partner in a very successful trailer company before he got his first feature film. And I think, um, God, who, who was the guy who did Re- Revenge of the Nerds, who was also a, a big film executive and his name uh, has escaped me, but he's done. He's made three or four films as a director, but he's he's just yeah, you know, and he's a leading light in Spyglass. But uh, <laughs> anyway, he he came from a, a, a trailer background. The thing about trailers is that it does teach you priorities. Yes. Uh, ah, yes. What do they come? What do they come here to see? Yeah. Uh, um, w- w- what is this film offering them? On, and if it doesn't offer them, you know, if it doesn't offer it to them very well or in sufficient quantity, how can we, who making the trailer, um, make it look like uh, it's still, you know, the, the greatest example of the genre uh, available uh, right away? So there's a, the art of manipulation uh, and deception is uh, was always present in trailer making. Uh, and right now, I think trailers uh, show too much. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They give away plot points. Um, you know, they're not thinking about the the well-being of the customer uh, and the uh, and the purchase experience that uh, he he has for that 2 hours uh having paid his money first mm-hmm. and and then gets to view the goods uh they're not thinking about that they're thinking about uh how can they make the first weekend uh mm-hmm. achieve the, the 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 biggest possible figures uh, because it's the quick and the dead uh, out there in uh, in theatrical release because of the extraordinary cost of publicizing films and all you know that that's something that's gone badly wrong with the business and perhaps internet advertising uh, is going to take over more and more uh, and you know there will be ways in which films can be noticed in a noisy and crowded marketplace without having to spend $20 million doing it. Right. Yeah, you make a good point there. The uh, I think trailers really hurt movies. I mean, I just, sometimes I won't even... 
I'm not even interested in a movie until it comes out on video because I've seen the movie in the trailer. So I just like, I'll, well, I'll just wait. I've already seen the movie basically. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it is a pity. You want to you want to experience that that surprise. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, you you want to be caught up in the drama and not know because you've seen the, an image, a particular image in a trailer that uh, she's going to you know screw his best friend or. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, turn into a serpent lady uh, or something like that. I, I like when that happens, of course. Yes. <laughs> I could see that over and over. But, uh, you know, so uh, sometimes my greatest filmmaking joy, sorry, my greatest film viewing joy is when I have gone to a film festival as a guest uh, to show some of my films and I get access to a whole range of uh, of, of other films that are, that are screening there and I have no idea about any of them mm-hmm. and I'll just go into one of the theatres and surprise me uh, yeah. and, uh, and sometimes of course uh, that's a disappointment but generally I, I'm, I'm seeing something absolutely virgin pure for the first time and letting its drama work on me or not uh, and I cite two examples that I saw at Karlovy Vary last year. One of, you know, that, that one of them has just recently been released here, and that's called Four Lions. Oh, yes. Uh, do you know Four Lions? Uh, I have not seen it yet. I don't believe my partner Will has seen it yet either, but we are aware of it, yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to see it, of course. It's great acclaim uh, thus far. Yeah, I, I didn't – well, the Czech audience – uh, were laughing even louder than I because they had Czech subtitles and I was sometimes trying to fathom the the uh, uh, Pakistani Birmingham uh, English accents that were you know sometimes were a little hard to to understand and uh, I hope that the U.S. release has actually put subtitles on uh, you know, some of those speeches. Uh, I have a screener that's been sent to me and I will, I haven't re, I want to show it to family members who seem, let's say a little, uh, they're not, you know, bursting to see a comedy about suicide bombers, but yes. I assure <laughs> I, I, it is an extraordinarily funny film that nonetheless uh, packs a, uh, well, packs a punch and really uh, gets some interesting issues out there. But the other one I saw was uh, Undopia Order, uh, Double Hour. Uh, that is a great Italian mystery thriller, and I knew nothing about it, and I sat down and I was totally sucked into it. So it's wonderful when that happens, but yeah. uh, you know, you, you, I guess you, you cannot release you know, an $80 million film without advertising. I understand that. Mm-hmm. I think there's just something to be said, though, for the way they go about it. I, I feel, Sorry to cut you off, Rick, but yeah, I just think the the art of cutting a trailer, which you could appreciate, Ryan, is, you know, leaves, you know, you got to tantalize people as opposed to just stuff it down their throat. I mean, I think, you know, you have to kind of, you know, parse it out a little bit here and then save some for the film, which just doesn't happen anymore. They blow their load, so to speak, all in the trailer. Yes, yes. Uh, you know, I... I sometimes feel like a human centipede, you know. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so but you know, look, I, I I've seen some very effective trailers that have only used one scene, like the uh, uh, the first trailer for uh, the Devil Wears Prada. 
Nice. Just one little scene uh, involving yeah, Anne Hathaway and uh, uh, well, the, the 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 three principal women, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, Meryl Streep, of course, was you know, uh, very effective. But just that one scene just showed you the the essence of the conflict, and that's all you needed to see. Yeah, uh, and yeah. Uh, they didn't spoil any of the subsequent surprises. Mm-hmm. I mean, it would have been very tempting to to use that shot of Meryl Streep after she's received the news that that you know that her husband's going to divorce her, uh, and her face is you know just a miracle of acting. She looks utterly crushed and devastated, and you know, red eyed, and you know, it, it's totally affected her face. Now that's an amazing image in the film, um, but and it would have been tempting for a trailer maker to put that in because that looks like vintage streep you know right, um, right. but it would have been you know it, it would have spoiled a major development in the film uh and you know i'm glad they didn't i don't know whether you know there, there obviously were subsequent trailers made where they did use more extracts but uh, mm. you know that that to me that was an example of you know a scene you don't show any of because so you want it to have impact for the customer later we've got to think about the customer as well as you know, the bragging rights of a distributor. Yeah, uh, kind of going into our next question with uh, filmmakers and things, uh, we kind of wondered, uh, you know, what films, filmmakers influenced you? I mean, some You spoke a little bit about Hitchcock already, but uh, we want to speak about a couple more maybe? Well, yes. Uh, I mean, Hitchcock certainly was... Uh, you know the, the first filmmaker whose style and, and skill I fell in love with, but um, I, I, you know, I, I probably am not much different from anybody else. I rapidly fell in love with uh, Ray Harryhausen's films, uh, uh, and uh, you know that they, they were you know, wonderful examples of uh, of fantasy adventure. Um, I was, you know, anything that David Lean made, um, yeah. and you, know, he, you had to wait a long time between films, but, but anything he made uh, was utterly stunning. Uh, I mean, Kubrick's films as well. I mean, when I saw um, Dr. Strangelove, uh, I was utterly knocked out by that film. That's, yeah. Actually, it was a film that I walked into because it was raining, and I was uh, in London, and I, uh, yeah, I missed my train, and I thought, "What the hell? I'll catch one in three hours' time. I'll go see this. What's this, Doctor Strange? Love? I didn't even know anything about it, uh, and uh, yeah, it was. You know, it's, it's one of the great films of its generation. So, uh, I was influenced by the uh, the sort of vigorous. But classical staging of Anthony Mann, and he, and he, he took that uh, whatever what he did with James Stewart westerns, he then yes. you know brought to you know the Samuel Bronston epics, mm-hmm. um, and uh, uh, you know there were, and there were neglected B movie um, directors, Gordon Douglas, for instance. Uh, I always thought his stuff was you know. Very well staged, well worked out, right. um, and uh, you know, uh, Ida Lupino is always you know good to see an Ida Lupino, um, generally black and white um, social issue uh, or crime drama. Um, so I mean, I had a pretty um, yeah, I was an omnivore uh, as a teenager, and uh, of course, you know, I loved uh, Italian sword and sandal epics. 
because you know you, you couldn't get Spartacus every day, but you could get, <laughs> let's say, a, you know, a junior burger in uh, you know the wrath of Achilles, uh, <laughs> something like that. Yes, Gordon Mitchell, um, which wasn't bad. You know, it was, it was not, a, not not bad. But you know, Goliath against the vampires. <laughs> yes, I like that. Um, yes. You know, and, it, and this is Mario Bava. You know, uh, his film Black uh, Sunday had been banned in England, mm-hmm. but uh, now, but for uh, for the over 16s we were allowed to see Goliath against the vampires, which had you know, people getting shot in the eye with an arrow, which <laughs> was pretty, it's pretty tame by today's standards. But yeah. you know, when when you're 16 and you see someone take a, a, an arrow in, in the eye, uh, uh, you go, ooh. Uh, and uh, that, 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 yeah. that was it. So, um, yeah, I, I, different styles of mayhem always uh, interested me in those days. Uh, I think that's, that's interesting you say different styles of mayhem because I think that's something as a society. You flourish, uh, I think, with a lot of mayhem on your films, a lot of movement, a lot of action. So I think that's, that's interesting you said that. Um, I just wanted one thing I did want to, well, we wanted to discuss with you. You know, you're someone who's worked um, all over the world, different kinds of film crews. And I think one of the things we find interesting are the nuts and bolts of uh, different film crews, something we're not privy to, obviously, and you would be. And if you could just talk for a moment, Brian, about the difference between, say, an Australian film crew versus an American crew and what are some of the strengths of each crew? Yeah, I mean, actually, it, it, film crews inhabit. Uh, their own universe, regardless of whether they are American, Australian, or Filipino. Uh, you know, I've done work, you know, with a Filipino crew a couple of times, and Hong Kong crew, and uh, Italian crew. So there, there might be certain little cultural differences. Um, like you, when I was doing Omega Code Two in Rome, the three weeks we did there, um, we worked with an Italian crew, just brought in an, an American DP. Um, but you know, uh, we yeah, uh, you know, we had a top Italian crew. But you know, at lunchtime, they were by union regulations allowed to have two small bottles of wine. With their with their lunch, yes, and that that was part of the you know the, the way it is in Italy. It's meant for a slightly slower start to the afternoon, <laughs> uh, but it picked up pace because um, everyone was anxious to get done by the end of the day. Um, so there are little cultural differences like that, but but basically, film crews all over the world are you know well they're addicted to. You know the, the the joys of uh, of you know drama being made by w- with the camera, uh, and you know, you're not in this business unless you are an enthusiast. Uh, no one, you know, you don't find people dragging their tail uh, on a film crew because that's just not the way. Uh, that's just it, it, it's just not the the ethos. Uh, Everyone wants to progress further up their particular ladder. There's a there'll be a grip or a continuity lady or uh, you know a, a clapper loader who aspires to being a director one day, and they're absorbing everything that they possibly can uh, around them and how the director does what he does and uh, whether his decisions maybe are good or bad, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, and so everyone's very focused because it, it's. Um, it's their passion as well as their profession. Uh, so, sure, there are differences. Um, 
I, but I generally find that you know, there's a there's a uniformity of enthusiasm uh, across the board uh, with you know different nationalities of film crew that they love to work and uh, as you know those in the business who know sometimes you don't work as often as you want to mm-hmm. uh, so so I mean and my approach with a film crew. Uh, of any nationality is not to come in like the 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 heavy-handed know-all to say okay well, this is not the way it's done in hollywood or this isn't the way i was trained in australia or whatever now we, we have to do it this this and this way um that's absolutely the wrong way for an, a director to approach working in in a foreign culture you listen and you see how they do it and you see how their particular approach could possibly be adapted modified improved slightly uh in in a subtle way and you you lead them along that path uh but you know quite often it's you know they do what they do for a very good reason in that particular part of the world and you just sort of go with it um ultimately it's down to leadership uh and uh, you know they want to be they want the alpha dog to be leading them in a good direction and to appreciate them, you know, following as fast as they can mm-hmm. uh, to, you know, use a curious metaphor. But uh, uh, so uh, that's, that's the approach I do. And I try and, inf- uh, it, it, I try and infect everyone with my own sense of enthusiasm for the, the process and for the you know, specific project and, and maybe for the specific scene that day, that morning, and uh, try and communicate my affection for the performers, uh, and you know, then you spread it, uh, and, and there's a good vibe to be had. Uh, no good film will be made in an atmosphere of fear and blame. Uh, people have to feel free uh, occasionally to make a mistake uh, and not to be you know, crushed for it. Um, so I think the level on which I operate, it's much easier to do that. The bigger the budget, the, the, the more hierarchical things become right. and the more people become afraid of, of losing their position uh, and or, or being politically allied with the wrong faction. And I hate all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, there's only one faction as far as I'm concerned, and that's, that's the movie I am making. And uh, we all dedicate ourselves to making it as, as good as it can be and resolve any conflicts uh, as, uh, you know, in as nurturing a way as possible. Right, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump into some uh, questions uh, about uh, some some in, individual films a little bit here. At least this one is anyway, because I'm kind of just going down the list of the questions we sent you. Uh, was there any discussion ever about uh, anyone other than uh, Jimmy Wang Yu for the Man from Hong Kong? I know Will gave an example in the question he wrote here of uh, Lo Lee, but uh, we know that we only know a little. I mean, most of us film fans know that Jimmy was. Notoriously difficult at times. Uh, we and I'm a big fan of uh, a lot of his films. I love uh, the man, uh, was it the Flying Guillotine film and and some other stuff. And of course, I love the Man from Hong Kong. It's one of my favorite films. And uh, uh, I would I just wonder if there was ever anyone else that you uh, that thought of maybe for that role. No, it really wasn't up to me because uh, it was a co-production uh, with uh, Raymond Charles Golden Harvest. Oh, yeah. And uh, I mean, when I conceived the story back in 1972. 
Uh, I had Bruce Lee in mind, uh, but uh, um, uh, but uh, the um, uh, Wong Yu was the number one star in uh, Hong Kong before Bruce Lee. Right. He and then for a while after Bruce's death, he became number one again. Um, so he was, you know, he, he was a star that would guarantee. Uh, a pan-Asian audience, uh, and maybe this film could launch him uh, into the you know, the English language world. Uh, he didn't speak English particularly well, and we replaced his voice with that of Roy Chow, uh, the um, uh, a, a, a sword, uh, you know, a sword movie hero of the fifties. Uh, who you know, still was working in the 50s and 60s, who was still working in the 70s, but was in his mid-50s. He, um, he was the guy who poisoned Indiana Jones early in the Temple of Doom movie. Ah, yes. uh, uh, and, uh, that, but that's, Roy Chow became Jimmy Wong Yu's voice. But uh, really there was, you know, if you were offered the big, biggest star in Asia, you, you, know, you, you don't argue <laughs> yeah, that's a very good point. Well, yeah, I, I argue with him a certain amount, but uh, <laughs> yeah, he was a bit difficult, and you've seen not quite Hollywood. Uh, <laughs> yes. and, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but you know, he. To be fair to him, he was yeah a big star. He had directed eight films before, and here was I uh, who just sort of done some quasi you know dramatized documentaries. Um, and yeah, you know, feeling my way a little bit, uh, and yeah, he yeah you know, he 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 sensed yeah. You know, sometimes people, if they sense insecurity or they sense hesitation, they they take advantage of it. Yes. So, uh, but what he didn't particularly get was my sense of humour for the film, uh, which luckily I was able to preserve. Yeah. Uh, uh, but uh, yeah. anyway, and he did eventually apologize to me um, when he saw the finished film mm-hmm. uh, nice. and realized that it had turned out all right. Some of that behavior, bad behavior by stars, is their own insecurity that they're going to be made to look foolish. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. He realized that he, he, he wasn't made to look foolish, uh, and uh, yeah, everything had worked out. Yeah, it's uh, that, there's a really great scene in that film of, of you two together, actually, that I really enjoy. Oh yeah, <laughs> he quite enjoyed it too. Um, yeah, no, that's uh, well. I mean, he he thought, oh well, look, the, the director wants to be in his own film and uh, have 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 a fight scene. Well, I'm going to treat him just as I would treat any Hong Kong stuntman. Yes, yeah, um, which is which is a little bit badly. <laughs> yes, well, let's say contact. Yes, contact. yes, yeah. but. Uh, and look, I, I think if I had been a better fighter, the fight would have uh, in the gym would have gone on longer. But he could see how unwieldy I, I was. <laughs> uh, but, you know, all Westerners are terribly stiff as far as the Chinese are concerned because they, you know, they train from birth at right. this kind of thing. Right. Oh yeah. Um, one of the things I always think about uh, when I talk about uh, where we are today with film versus where we are when I was a child and then being someone who admires and, and pursues film history even further back to the drive-in boom. And this next next question is kind of centers around that. It's through the drive-in boom and into the VHS of the 80s. We had a lot of great 
quote unquote B movie and character actors populating lower budgeted films. And we had a lot of great films made for considerably lower budgets back uh, through the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Uh, what, in your estimation, has changed? I mean, I just find that there's not as much talent involved with uh, the lower budgeted films today as there was then. And do you think this is partially due to the fact that people just want the big Michael Bay-esque explode, you know, the, the really big kind of uh, popcorn movies? Or what do you attribute that to, Brian? Well, it's a combination of factors. Uh, I think there are so many different devices now competing. Uh, it used to be, you know, hey, you know, we, we, let's go to the movies and we can either see a, a, a big Hollywood movie or we can see a double bill of two, two interesting, you know, lower budget pictures. But, you know, that's better than watching television. And it's certainly better than listening to the radio. Right. Uh, yeah. uh, and so, you know, uh, there was a sense of occasion about going to the movies. Uh, let's say in the 50s, when I was first going to the movies in the, in the 60s, frequently the, the, the manager of the theater would be out there greeting his patrons, many of whom he would know by name, uh, and because they were regulars. So there was a different feeling about uh, going to, to the movies and it had that sense of occasion. Now there are so many things competing for your attention, you know, you know Twitter and, uh, and, you know, everything that the internet has to offer, video games. And we've also had our attention span shortened by, well, frankly, the influence of MTV and ever and ever faster cutting. Uh, so um, we're demanding, you know, much more be packed into the same package for us to feel we're getting our money's worth. I think part of that is uh, that, that that's part of the, uh, the, the problem. Um, also, budgets for lower budget films, uh, particularly of, of, of genre films, have gone down and down and down, and I'm lucky to get, if I'm making a, you know, my lesbian Rambo, you know, <laughs> Uh, in her line of fire with <laughs> Ariel Hemingway and, and David Keith, I got to make that in fourteen days. Right? Oh wow! <laughs> uh, and 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 eleven hour days in, in New Zealand and 12, 12, 12, 12 11 hour days in New Zealand and two twelve hour days in Vancouver, uh, and um, it, it's. You know, it, it gets very hard to compete with the Michael Bay movies right. when you're doing that. So you better have um, you better have really arresting ideas, perhaps, or dramatic twists and turns. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, when, when the Cone Brothers made their film noir homage on a low budget, uh, Blood Simple, they had those things, and then it could stand out in the marketplace. Um, right. Uh, from you know, from other you know, from other Hollywood pictures, because it it, it was different and it, it it you know ventured into some taboo territories, and it was it, it still had you know obviously it had style, mm -hmm. uh, but they the they had worked on the script to make sure there were twists and turns and surprises, and you know a, a good surprise in a script doesn't necessarily have to cost money. Uh, it, uh, it just, you know, it, you can get a, a, a gasp out of an audience uh, simply by using the right words or the right juxtaposition. So, uh, but, you know, the, the answer to your question is, is, you know, is, is very complex, um, because there are so many factors that have, let's say, 
driven things down right. uh, in quality. Uh, and, but also, you know, the, there are the, the means of distribution and exhibition uh, is now in fewer and fewer hands. Uh, so, you know, it, it's harder for people to innovate, um, uh, you know, as, as they as they once did. Um, but uh, you know, we we battle on. We have to. We do the best we can with with what we uh, what we have. Right. And luckily, my you know ultra low budget films like you know, in her line of fire uh, and Tides of War uh, have you know found an audience who nonetheless appreciate them on their own terms. Yes, I need to see that in her line of fire. We talked about that a little bit. I, that's one that's uh, avoided me for a while now. I need to check that one out. <laughs> Look, I mean, it, it, it's not anything you need to walk over broken glass to get to necessarily, <laughs> but uh, uh, it, it's my sort of slightly wry homage to, you know, uh, 80s gun porn. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, uh, the hero or heroine has a big gun uh, and blows away all sorts of unfortunate third world people. Yes. Uh, no doubt just obeying orders. Uh, but they, they, uh, you know, those orders brought them uh, into range of her gun sight. Uh, and, you know, do, do not piss off the lesbian Secret Service uh, guard to the vice president, otherwise she will slaughter the entire island. Yes. And that's basically what she does. And she gets to kiss Jill Bennett twice. Uh, <laughs> I, I wish we could have done more with that, yeah. but uh, they by being being chased and shot at most of the movie, they don't have much time for some <laughs> sort of nice relaxing soise en nerf, let's say. <laughs> oh, that sounds incredible! I got to yeah. track this down. Yeah, see, Brian, I, the, no, uh, with, I, I'm, I'm being a non, yeah, I, I'm, I'm being the worst kind of trailer. I'm hinting at things <laughs> that are, that you yeah, that, that are scarcely there. No, they, they have two. You know, nice uh, uh, kisses. That's all they have. No time to get their gear off. No. If you don't want to be chased naked through the jungle by. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, we, we love the we love the big gun movies on this show, though, and a lot of our listeners oh, yeah. love them too. So there's definitely Let something sounds up our alley. Well, love the Indonesian stuff and whatnot. <laughs> I didn't have much money for big guns, um, <laughs> and in fact, you know, there's some quite antique weapons that people have, and we justify that with, well, uh, you know, the you know, terrorists from whom she's taken the guns, uh, um, you, you know, have a pretty motley collection of firearms, and they're not always right up to the minute, uh, and so... Yeah, we we have uh, a British gun of which I used to know as an FN, uh, which he gets to use at a certain point. And there's a, 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 a submachine gun that used to be known as a port side and was a favorite of uh, uh, Egyptian insurgents, apparently. So uh, gun aficionados might enjoy picking, you know, spotting the guns. Oh, he's using a yeah, what, what do you call it? And uh, so. There are, there are things that uh, are of, uh, of interest for them. But uh, it was a film that was made to serve, you know, obviously two masters. It, uh, it had to be – it couldn't be so violent that it couldn't play on television, uh, basic cable and, uh, you know, European television. It couldn't be so sexy that 
uh, for the, in the lesbian version that it couldn't play on European television. They're more tolerant of lesbians uh, right. than American television. Um, but uh, you know, it 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 had it, it it had its own particular straitjacket that it was in. But uh, uh, you know, I think for a million two, um, it, uh, it 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 isn't bad. And hey, I think the gay and lesbian uh, audience deserves heroes and heroines uh, like themselves uh, because mm. you know you know they've been. You know, they've been gay uh, heroes throughout history. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think it was normalizing them in a movie context uh, is, uh, you know, I, I think a perfectly legitimate thing to do. I'm a, I'm a, a, a tolerant person. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's the, hopefully the world is moving more in that direction. Uh, yeah, yeah, I agree with you on that. Uh, is there a genre that, uh, I mean, you are known as being a very uh, genre director. Is there a genre that you haven't worked on or worked in that you would have liked to or would well, like to? you know, I, I haven't done uh, a lavish musical. I, I don't really call stunt rock a musical. <laughs> a rockumentary, mockumentary, um, and one of a kind uh, that sort of blends uh, action scenes with uh, heavy metal uh, and uh, you know, depicts a, a unique stuntman, uh, you know, a one-of-a-kind guy, Grant Page. But, uh, no, I mean, uh, I, I wouldn't mind doing a lavish Bollywood musical uh, full of, you know, uh, exotic dancing and sweeping camera movements. Uh, and but probably what I'd want to do with it would not, uh, you know, be you know, w- would be too provocative for um, the <laughs> uh, the Indian audience. Though I, I, I do remember being in New Delhi once uh, and uh, passing a huge billboard for a movie, um, and the uh, the ad line in both English and Hindi uh, said uh, I think it was the only. All talk, the only all singing, all dancing movie um, in Bombay with eleven murders. <laughs> <laughs> obviously, they, 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 they the, the previous one had obviously had only ten murders. Yes, <laughs> but they just when was that? That was, I think, God, that was about twenty years ago. Uh, but just the the idea that that there could be an all singing, all dancing movie with eleven murders uh, was an interesting genre hybrid, uh, <laughs> and uh, so yeah, maybe it's sort of Black Swan in a ballet in in, in an opera company or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Yeah, that, that could be good in Hindi. Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> um. Well, I think a lot of people who love turkey shoot uh, have a, maybe a brief knowledge of, of uh, I guess, some of the limitations or the, the things that were kind of pulled out from under you, I think, right before shooting started. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, this is sort of a twofold question. I wanted to ask about that. And also, uh, Roger Ward, we adore him from the, the films we've seen him in. And I wanted to know if you have any uh, knowledge of any films he was the lead in, because I think he just has, we both think he's, he's fantastic. Yeah, I, I love Roger. In fact, I just sent him an email this morning. Uh, he has a he wrote a book back in the '60s called The Set. It was a well, it, it 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 was an unpublished novel that was then made into an early Australian film in 1969 and depicted a group of characters 
dealing with Australia's sexual revolution in the 60s, uh, characters involved in the, the art world. Uh, and finally, um, that film has been resurrected and re-shown uh, in Australia, and his book is being published by Janus of London on the 25th of uh, um, of February oh. uh, so uh, that's a string to Roger's bow that you're probably not aware of huh. um, he you know, has, has always been a bit of a writer when he was one of the oarsmen and general sailors on the Tahiti shoot of Mutiny on the Bounty with Brando and uh, Trevor Howard uh, he started writing the set back then um, anyway it's, uh, it, it's just you know, one, one of the the many aspects to Roger that people don't know, a former wrestler, um, general all-round worldwide adventurer, uh, but you know, always an actor at heart. Uh, and, and like a lot of uh, good actors, uh, he could write good characters and, uh, and, and plot good stories. He, would, he rarely you know, got... Well, he, he, he got leading supporting roles because of his... You know, just his physical attributes. You know, mm -hmm. he, uh, he he was never leading man material. Um, but uh, uh, the uh, he did play in, in a number of television series uh, as a major support. I think he did three years on the the cult show Number Ninety Six. They couldn't call it Sixty Nine, though they wanted. <laughs> Um, um, you know, it was, you know, an apartment block in Sydney where, you know, everybody was at it like rabbits, um, <laughs> except for Roger, I think. Roger's Rod, Rod, character never, never you know, got to, uh, uh, you know, get his, uh, to dip his wick, so to speak. <laughs> uh, but um, uh, he played the janitor. Um, but he, he would get, you know, continuing roles in cop shows and things like that. But, no, there was never a film utterly built around Roger, though they built the the poster uh, for Turkey Shoot around him, certainly the British poster. Uh, and uh, I think you can find examples of the British poster, I think, on in, 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 the, in my blogs where I have uh, uh, you know, told stories of, um, of Turkey Shoot. So for your, for your listeners, you know, if they... Go to www.filmindustrybloggers.com and go to uh, the the genre director. That's me. Then there's something like 18 months worth of war stories that they can scroll through in the archives if they so wish. And there uh, you'll see a certain amount about Roger there. Nice. Uh, but I love Roger. He's the gentle giant. Um, and for 35 years, he's been telling me uh, how much he adores my wife. Uh, <laughs> which is always good to know. <laughs> uh, he 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 greeted he met her and, and greeted, gave me a very jealous look when we first were married. So, uh, but uh, you know, Roger's been in just a, you know, so many things that I have made. He was in the stuntmen. He was part of the stunt team in that. Um, he turns up in Danger Freaks, um, and naturally, he's in Man from Hong Kong and Death Cheaters. But once I started making films internationally, it was, you know, uh, I, you know, I couldn't get him in because he, he, didn't, he didn't fit the kind of roles that I had. And he was, you know, my Vietnam movie, The Siege of Firebase Gloria, uh, yep. while we, you know, we could have brought him into the Philippines, he, he just was not 
he he was yeah he was older than than uh, any of the characters we needed, but you know I still you know had you know thirty five year you know uh, thirty nearly forty year relationship with Roger and and he's still acting he's in a film called Bad Behavior, um, which I think they've just put a trailer online and you'll you'll see some interesting shots of Roger in that. Nice. Uh, he plays a a really vicious criminal. Um, it's been made by Joseph Sims, a young up and coming Australian genre filmmaker. It's it's a very dark Tarantino esque kind of crime story, and Roger is, you know, the the meanest uh, hitman uh, in the world. Uh, it's something he does well, although the, the Roger I know couldn't hurt a fly. Yeah, that's very interesting. I have to look into that. Let, let me ask this, Brian, while we're on the subject of Roger and, of course, Turkey Shoe, which is one of our favorite films over here. And I have to ask this. We didn't put this in the question, so this is a little improvisational. But one of our favorite things in any movie we've ever covered is the Beast Man that wears the top hat in Turkey Shoe. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, he, he tends to divide opinion. When the film came out, people ridiculed him. But, you know, they, well, let's say the film was exhibited to an audience that took itself far too seriously. Uh, I mean, the producer decided in his infinite wisdom to enter the film for the Australian Film Institute Awards. Oh, wow. uh, now these are, you know, this is like a basically like an undergraduate film society audience that's halfway up itself, um, with you know, uh, you know, people who who you know, read, you know, well, were reading films and filming and Cahiers du Cinema, and uh, you know, felt that cinema was an art form uh, and an engine for social change. Uh, all of which it can be, but sometimes it's it's just there to blow shit up and and, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and give people a good time uh, and maybe cater to you know, some of their baser instincts, but uh, uh, as a, a purgative, shall we say, yeah. uh, have a cathartic effect. Um, and uh, you know, uh, so Turkey Shoot was it, it utterly appalled them pretty much from the first. Frame. Yeah. Um, you know, there I was using riot footage to compensate for the first fifteen pages that had been torn out of the script because we couldn't afford them anymore. Um, I, and there were all these leftists getting beaten by police, and I was using that as a, uh, a, a, a as a dramatic device. Shock, horror, disgraceful. Um, uh, but no, I thought it was a good way to depict uh, a, a, a fascist future. Mm -hmm. uh, so. Uh, but uh, so there was a lot of criticism of Turkey Shoot for, for, for on, on many grounds. But people ridiculed the Beast Man, but they didn't. Yeah, you know, they just didn't get my sense of humor. It's. It, I seem to be sadly uh, twenty five years ahead of my time, <laughs> and you know that's 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 not a good margin. You know, I've only maybe got years left. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's. Uh, uh, so I'm glad you liked him, and I, I think I think Steve is no longer Steve Rackman uh, plays plays him. I don't believe he is with us anymore. I think I heard somewhere I hadn't seen him for years. He played Donk in uh, uh, the Crocodile Dundee movies, but I. I I have a, f a, a sneaking feeling that he, he, is, he has gone to that great studio in the sky. I hope I'm not prematurely executing him. But, uh, <laughs> um, but uh, you know, he was 
he was, uh, he, if we'd had the money we thought we were going to have, he would have been a more elaborately made up, uh, you know, circus freak. Um, and, you know, we would have had much more hair on his body. Uh, you know, we maybe had him stripped to the waist. Uh, and uh, I would have liked to have given him a really big cod piece as well. <laughs> And uh, but uh, occasionally I, I exercise restraint, not very often. <laughs> uh, but uh, the but you know they, they just couldn't accept the the kind of fantasy level that uh, the film was was operating on. So I'm glad you guys got it. And and you know whenever I've seen the film with an audience uh, in these retrospectives, they they love him too, uh, and they completely get off on him. Yeah. Uh, so. oh, yeah he's- such fantastic! A, such Even a, the lesbian cross, the lesbian with the crossbow, and like the old English hunting gear, just fantastic. <laughs> yes, yeah, Carmen Duncan. Wow. I mean, we had to double her horse. She was wasn't a very good rider, but uh, um, uh, and uh, in fact, her stunt double has, I believe, since gone into politics uh, and is now a, a, a state legislative member in South wow. Australia. So it's funny how. How people's career grows, you know. Uh, you know, she's firing, you know, doubling someone, firing exploding crossbow bolts into people. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and yeah, and then years later, she uh, gets to uh, be in parliament. Uh, so, but that's her double, not Carmen. Uh, but wow. yeah, it, it's uh, it, it was a stressful film to make because uh, I was, you know, I. <laughs> 15 pages of the 1984 city sequences in which the three turkeys are captured. And, you know, there would have been big action in those scenes, uh, but it basically, you know, then delivered them to the prison camp after 15 pages. And you could argue you could start a prison camp, and that's certainly... I couldn't uh, dispute that the story couldn't start at the prison camp, and I filled the gap with the the, the archival footage. Um, but that meant my 94-page script was down to 80 pages. And then uh, we couldn't afford an actor who was demanding $50,000, and he was a big name in Australia. Um, so the producer's response was, well, let's cut his character, give his function to the other hunters. Oh, all right. You know, and this is two weeks away from the shoot. Um, and uh, so, and then there was a four page uh, helicopter chase uh, that we couldn't afford the helicopter for. So um, that's what I walked into, let's say, uh, at the start of shooting to have to, you know, build those remaining 74 pages back up to a movie that could run. Yeah, you know, over ninety minutes, and in this case, I think it ran ninety-four. Um, though, you know, naturally, I would actually, if I had it to re-edit, I would have trimmed it back by you know, to just you know eighty-eight or something like that, um, because you know I think pace. I could I could improve the pace of any of my films, in fact, any film. Um, so, uh, but uh, that was, uh, yeah, that was. I had to let's say. Uh, conjure up bits of business that we could still manage to shoot in the 10-hour day because we were limited by daylight. We were in the Australian winter mm-hmm. and uh, and deep in the jungle. And once the sun went down over the tree line, it got fairly dark in there and we didn't have or couldn't afford big lights. 
Uh, as you can see, there's no night shooting, uh, <clears throat> but there is one sort of dusk moment, mm-hmm. and that, that had every light uh, <laughs> that we possessed uh, <laughs> doing that hysteria <laughs> to try and... Uh, but anyway, they, they, so it was a challenge where I had to make up a certain amount of stuff on the spot, and so therefore the film doesn't have the precision that it might have, or maybe sometimes the good judgment. Uh, it just had too many compromises, I, I felt, to... Uh, at the time, but what I found is that it has a a, 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 a sense of wicked glee yeah. uh, and you know uh, at, at its excesses uh, and uh, that you know in, in, in a more sort of uh, to a postmodern sense of humor audience then that seems to work really well and cover up some of its you know uh, shortcomings you know i mean I, I think i could have done better in some certain performance moments uh but yeah you know, every day you do the best you can and you you win a few you lose a few yeah, it's a good point. Uh, I just want to add, before Will asks the next question here, that uh, Mr. Ruckman is still alive, actually. He says on his IMDb that he's running a gym in, in Australia. So, Oh, my God. I've killed another actor prematurely. <laughs> you know, I've, I've done this before. I, I, uh, in my narration of, the, of Dead End Drive-In, um, uh, I said that Peter Whitford had gone to God. And then eight years later, after I'd done that recording, um, someone actually uh, plays it and uh, sends an email to me saying, wait a minute, he's not dead. Uh, so uh, so I, I sent an email back, of, you know, resurrecting him. Yes. Um, that was Peter Whitford. So, so okay, I resurrect Steve. <laughs> just, that's a mistake I think a lot of us make with these uh, character actors and people like that. So I, I just... I, th- I find it very interesting. We would love to interview him for the show. I, I, I don't know how I could find, possibly reach out for him, but I'm going to try to. Hmm. Well, um, and if you ever want to interview Roger Ward, I'm Ooh. sure he'd be very glad to, to hear from you. And I will, you know, uh, if you send me an email to that effect, I will forward it to him. Oh, wow. also mentioned that uh, you'd like to interview uh, Steve Rackman, who – I, I suspect Roger will know where to find Steve Rackman. Wow. <laughs> That's excellent. Well, thank you for that, certainly. No, no, my pleasure. My pleasure. Uh, I believe, Rick, you're up next in terms of questions, unless you want me to... Uh... Yeah, just go ahead, Will. Okay, certainly. Um, we talk uh, often about manufacturing things for films, uh, tension, etc. Uh, and what is the hardest thing to manufacture for an audience? Laughs, stunts, tone. Uh, what is it for you, Brian, do you find in your experience? <sighs> Oh God! How long is a piece of string? Um, it, it's you know um, finding the tone is important because you might have a certain tone in your head as you prepare the film, but then you you add the actors that you have cast, or frequently more and more these days have been cast for you by those further up the food chain, you have the power to do so and say, no, my taste will prevail. You'll have this actor in this part and that actor in that part. And, you know, sometimes when you're just a gun for hire, you have to accept that. So you're not quite sure of the chemical balance of all the elements on that first day of shooting. Uh, Or, you know, you're still getting the crew to gel uh, so uh, there are many factors that are impacting upon uh, 
you know, how the tone of the uh, the first few scenes, which is what you're going to be using as a yardstick as you continue to build the film, um, you know, how, how that tone is working out. Uh, so that can be, um, you know, a, a little bit of a challenge. Um, but, I mean, if I have an action scene and I know I've got, you know, so many hours in which to shoot it, I try and tailor my coverage to what I can achieve in those hours or what I could achieve with a, a, you know, a splinter unit going in and cleaning up the inserts to a list that I give uh, thereafter, further enhancing the coverage. Uh, so, uh, but I, you know, generally there is a, uh, you know, a, you have a plan at least for a, an action sequence. Uh, and then, you know, if you, yeah, if you have time later in the film, you can always enhance it, um, and so that's yeah, uh, that that's another factor. But I mean, every yeah, there are so many different levels of challenge. There is diplomacy; you have to manage your cast, maintain their enthusiasm, deal with their nitpicks or major complaints. Uh, deal with the conflicting personalities. I had to, you know, had to do that recently where the male and female lead did not like each other. Uh, but they managed to summon up some, you know, sexual chemistry, uh, but they didn't like each other and they argued about the, the scenes they were doing together. Uh, and I had to referee that. So there's that going on uh, constantly. Um, it, well, I mean, that, that, that's an extreme example, but there, there are always these diplomacy issues to do, uh, deal with. And uh, then, of course, there is, uh, well, more and more, the issue of getting it done in the time available. Um, yeah, it, every five minutes you lose adds up. And you think if a mistake uh, or a, a late arrival or whatever you know, causes you a five-minute delay, and you add up all those five minutes in the course of your shooting schedule, you think, what could I, if, if all those things had not gone wrong, what could I have, what more could I have achieved with that, that lost time? Uh, but I mean, I, I'm a cup half full guy rather than a cup half empty person. And so I don't think of it entirely in those terms. Um, but there is, you know, the, there, you know, there are many, you know, things constantly to be, uh, you're trying to take care of, uh, so I can't really single any one out as more difficult than, than anything else. It's, it's it's many balls in the air, including your own. You know? <laughs> yes. <So. laughs> nice. Hey, uh, we what we did, uh, Brian, is we kind of we gave we're giving away these two DVDs that uh, you and Joe signed for Trails from Hell, that uh, great website. And I didn't mention it earlier when you mentioned it, but yes, that is a great website. In fact, I cannot look at it while I'm at work, or I will not get any work done. So. I love that website to death. But uh, you guys were kind enough to send us some autographed DVDs, and we're going to give away two of them. And what we did is we just put some questions out for our listeners to send in, and we just picked a couple of our favorites. So I'm going to go ahead and ask the first of the contest winners now, if that's okay, and uh, you have you answer their question. So uh, this one is uh, from James McCormick. Uh, he says, out of your vast movies you've directed, can you rate uh, your three favorites to shoot and your three less least favorite, or at least one of the other? Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, you know, you could say I have, you know, 
Uh, you know, I've made 40 crimes against cinema. You know, that's, that's 40 children <laughs> I've brought into the world. Uh, what's a favorite child? What's a not favorite child? <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, you're talking about my family here. Uh, so, I mean, I think BMX Bandits was a favorite film to shoot because I had you know, pretty much complete creative control. I rewritten the action scenes from a to take them from a you know an industrial suburb of Melbourne to the northern beaches and the harbour side of city of the city of sydney which is one of the most beautiful cities in the world and sort of it's sort of like san francisco only more compact um uh, so i would list bmx as 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 you know one of my favorites to shoot similarly a very arduous difficult film the the siege of firebase gloria which you know making a war movie in a war zone um is you know problematic um uh, and uh, you know, when you, you go uh, to the top of the hill and you await the arrival of uh, representatives from the New People's Army, the communist insurgents that the Filipino government were fighting in Luzon, and you're two hours out of Manila and you're in NPA contested territory, but that's where you want to build your fire base. So the smart move is to do a deal with the NPA and you sit on this hill and you with you know your first AD who's armed uh, and your wow. you know uh, your your you know, production designer Toto Castillo um, and then a truck arrives with two guys with bandanas across their faces uh, and they sit down and they negotiate in Tagalog with my uh, Filipino buddies and strike a deal to be our security guards. Who better to protect yourself from the NPA than the NPA themselves? And they're much better than the police because they don't get drunk and bring their cousins and want them to get uh, paid as well. So, I mean, oh. that was a, a a really interesting experience. I mean, I, I, I am an adventurer, I suppose. That's, you know, I, I like adventures, uh, preferably ones that you survive. And <laughs> so far, so good. Uh, uh, and Siege of Firebase Gloria was, in every respect, a, a, a glorious adventure that uh, you know uh, that I that I, I'm sure I will never be able to repeat. Uh, but uh, so, although there were times when I felt the sky was falling uh, and uh, this film would never get made, or it would be terrible, uh, or you know, whose house and I would come to blows or whatever. Wow. Uh, I nonetheless regard it as, you know, a, a two-month highlight of my life. So that's, I guess, number two. Ooh, now, I mean, how do I pick a number three? See, I, I don't, you know, I actually, while Stunt Rock was interesting and stimulating and a great adventure to make, I don't think it, it 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 filled me with the same joy while shooting it as BMX and you know Firebase did right. uh, the the time, um, you know. You think, yeah. I mean, Dead End Drive-In obviously is a it is a good candidate. Mm -hmm. uh, that because of the night shoots, 
you know, we, we, we did split day nights. We'd get there at three and finish at five in the morning, uh, 30, 35 nights. Uh, and then you got the late afternoon sun. You could backlight things uh, very easily. Uh, and well, obviously we had – and then, uh, then in the, at night we could have lots of neon and wet pounds and all the things that make night photography look good. But it was a t- – it, it very punishing schedule to uh, to do that, uh, and so I can't remember the shoot being, you know, uh, giving me that level of satisfaction. And also, I you know, I, I had people who didn't really believe in what I was doing involved in uh, in the production hierarchy. Uh, so, uh, but I just charted ahead and had, and, and ignored ignored them and i think history uh has proved me right because the film is still playing well to audiences you know on netflix streaming and you know uh, and on anchor bay dvd Mm -hmm. um so i i have to give this guy an answer to sahara okay (laughs) sahara yeah um that shot in 95 remaking the humphrey bogart in 1943 original uh and for 18 yeah, three glorious six-day weeks. We worked with Jim Belushi and an ensemble Australian cast, and it was a very unified production. Uh, and everyone really cared about what they were doing, and it was just all-consuming. Um, and uh, we would shoot for our ten hours of daylight. Again, another one shot in the winter that was all exterior, and then we'd eat. And then we'd go to Jim's room and we would rehearse the next day's scenes with all the cast uh, and then collapse asleep and get up uh, in time to be on, you know, on set in the dark so we could eat breakfast in the dark. And the moment we had light, we would then be setting up and starting to shoot. So uh, there was a wartime, you know, enthusiasm to the, that shoot we 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 were pushing a giant rock up a hill we're all doing it together there was one single dissenting voice uh and you know we got it there and i think it's it's one of my best films it's sort of classically made in a world war ii style you know no shaky cam uh you know none of the nervous ticks that seem to you know be mistaken for style these days um and uh, so and it turned out well. So it was, yeah, I would count those three as, if I have to choose three, um, those would be good. But, I mean, Britannic was a, a wonderful experience in England, too, and I've just had a great experience shooting with Leah Thompson. So, uh, to me, it's a great privilege uh, uh, to uh, to be making a film, and it gives me great joy. So even if it's tough, and everybody hates me, uh, which doesn't happen very often. Uh, then uh, I I don't care because I'm I'm getting to you know, basically you know, express myself artistically and uh, and you know, pursue my passion. Right, right. All right, uh, Will you uh, do you want to ask the next question, Will? Yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, this is from another one of our the other contest winner, Carl Bresden, and he wants to know if there's a scene you've filmed, uh, action or otherwise, that you're most proud of because of the challenges you faced in shooting it. Hmm. Wow. Gee. Ah. So, so, so many choices. Uh, you know, sometimes look. Uh, 
a battle scene, a sensitive love scene, a sensitive, you know, hearts and flowers, you know, tearful scene. It, they all have their different range of uh, of challenges. Uh, and after you've done that many of them, it's really hard to sort of uh, uh, say, yes, that was the most challenging sequence of all. But uh, I would I would suggest that there are other great moments of satisfaction that you can have uh, when you get to the cutting room uh, and when you have brought off a particular moment or a particular effect or a particular joke. And, and generally, uh, it's very satisfying if you have planned it and then you put it together in, 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 while editing and it works. A, a, a moment in The Man from Hong Kong that yeah, gives me a sense of professional pride and satisfaction is a planned cut from uh, Jimmy Wong Yu stamping um, yeah, Sam Hung in the balls and a close-up of uh, all the, the pool on the pool table at the triangle of pools getting split and scattering in all directions yes. as a transition to the, the, the next scene between the two pools. Now, that's a moment that gets a good laugh from the audience. And when you get a, you create a moment that gets a response at every single screening, uh, that is is something that you, you know, lodges in your memory as uh, as giving you great satisfaction. Yes, yeah, that's a great example. Actually, it's a great a great moment. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, we are on this show big fans. Actually, we're big fans of character actors in general, but. Uh, we are big fans of Wings Hauser, and I wanted to add this. We just discovered this right before we came on the air. We didn't know. We're huge fans of uh, not only Wings Hauser, but Henry Silva as well. Could you tell us a little bit maybe about uh, what it was like working with uh, those guys? Well, Henry Silva was only in for basically two days, uh, and I don't have a particularly fond memory of him because he didn't know his lines. Uh, okay. <laughs> and he, he, look, he was—he felt he was slumming. He, you know, coming down to Mexico, you know, picking up, you know, twenty-five grand uh, to be in this movie. He had two days of of, of short scenes, uh, and that's, you know, he knew he was adding a. A, a name that was good for the foreign markets to the marquee for the film, mm-hmm. and he didn't feel he needed to do any preparation, and yeah, he could do one line at a time. Uh, and yeah, I he didn't seem a particularly happy man. Oh. Like a guy who's played professional assassins most of his life, uh, <laughs> you may, may not necessarily have a, a, a you know an untroubled mind, uh, but. Uh, <laughs> So I, I I don't yeah sure he is a a cult icon uh, you know Johnny Cool uh, yes. and and I you know I gushed about you know, some of his past roles but he you know it it, it didn't necessarily make him sort of uh, want to want to uh, lift his game a little professionally but uh, and I would regard that film. Um, Day of the Assassins as one of the worst experiences of my life. So if it, it uh, provides a, 
even though I, I, it was a great adventure in Mexico, um, if you, you can read my blog about it, you know, uh, uh, you know, Glenn Ford squeezed my balls, dispatches from the co-production <laughs> hell. Um, <laughs> if you read the, the two blogs I've done that mentioned Day of the Assassins, you can see what, you know, what, what a difficult production it was. And it, 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 and, and it was one without, in which I had, you know, the least amount of control I've ever had over a film uh, with everything going wrong, uh, money collapsing the whole time, uh, and, and so forth. So, uh, but, you know, I, I just listed as something I would never like to repeat, mm-hmm. but I'm glad I went through it. Right. You know, what does not kill you makes you stronger. And I learned to protect myself from uh, the kind of executive producers uh, that uh, were the principal cause of all the problems. Do, do you have any uh, words of wisdom on uh, Wings Hauser? I know we were big fans of yeah, Wings. So. Wings. Wings and I, well, we did not exactly see eye to eye on Firebase. And, and I, I can understand why in any conflict resolution you have to look at the what is the other party's beef. And you know, I kind of understood his beef. I mean, he was the bigger name uh, in the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he, you know, he had made films like Vice Squad that were huge in the foreign markets, and the film was basically you know, funded uh, based upon its potential foreign market appeal, and he was a name that would ensure uh, you know, all those yeah, places that bought Vice Squad uh, and uh, others, uh, other sort of vigilante films that he'd made, that they would buy Siege of Firebase Gloria. So as far as he was concerned, he was the star, um, though the script sort of kind of wrote him and Sergeant Major Hafner pretty much equal. Um, well, Lee Ermey arrived in the Philippines ahead of Wings, uh, and uh, he, had, of course, Lee had lived in the Philippines, uh, and Lee had done two and a half tours of duty in Vietnam before getting shrapnel in the shoulder, which is a disadvantage to a shoulder to, to a rifleman, uh, and uh, uh, and he was invalided out, uh, and but he he is now naturally I think the world's most famous marine. Um, I spoke to him a little before Christmas last, and he's he's been doing very well, uh, and so. Lee was around for three or four days before Wings arrived, which was like the Friday before we started shooting on the Monday. Um, and, you know, I listened to, to Lee more and more uh, as to what was authentic and what was not authentic in the way we were, you know, setting up the firebase. Uh, and I wanted it to, you know, uh, I wanted to make sure that Lee's constituency uh, and the armed forces uh, were as satisfied as possible. Uh, and also Lee was just a great personality and I wanted to infuse his role with his personality. So I started to devising little opportunities where he could strut his regular stuff, just as in a way he had done in uh, as a technical advisor to, uh, to Kubrick on Full Metal Jacket. Kubrick had seen him drilling the actor's while the guy playing Sergeant Major, the, the, the Sergeant Major, the drill sergeant, was away sick, 
and uh, and uh, Kubrick thought, wow, this guy's got a great personality. I think I'm going to replace the actor I have with him. And that's how Lee got uh, his part in the, you know, uh, they, went, they went back to the beginning and started shooting uh, those scenes all over again. Uh, and even when Lee had a car accident, they didn't replace him. They waited till he, he was well enough to continue. Uh, so Kubrick fell in love with what Lee could do on the screen, and I did the same. So I started devising further opportunities that were not in the script. When Wings saw this, he was not happy. He felt really that if there was any extra stuff to be devised, it should be for him. And I was changing the balance of the show because he should have been, he should be the, 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 the top banana. Uh, and that caused conflict. I did have Lee, I did have Wings write a scene, uh, which we filmed and it's there. It's the sort of the, the scene in which the two men have their final heart to heart about what went wrong in their relationship uh, the, the, between their characters. Of course, the, their relationship on the set was pretty fractious too. Um, so uh, anyway, it we, we got it done. Um, and uh, I think Wings gives a great performance mm-hmm. as a completely, you know, um, you know, it, you know, it, it, it War, you know, war has driven him crazy, uh, and uh, uh, he he delivers a very consistent performance in that, and uh, uh, and that performance is admired today. Uh, similarly, Lee's performance is greatly admired, uh, but uh, um, it was kind of chalk and cheese the two of them on the on the set, and I was, uh, and yeah, Wings felt that I had betrayed him. Uh, because he felt that he he yeah he was obviously the, meant to be the leading man, and I was I was boosting this other guy who was you know just you know, he just been a you know, he hadn't been an actor till uh, well he had actually been in quite a few films like Purple Hearts and he he played himself in a number of military movies in the in in the, the Philippines but never been given a, a a big part like Full Metal Jacket so so that's the essence of the conflict between Wings and I. And I offered him another part many years later, which unfortunately he wasn't able to do, uh, just to show, hey, there's no hard feelings, uh, because you know what remains on the screen uh, is excellent work mm-hmm. uh, that uh, you should be proud of, and he agreed. Uh, so, you know, we, we kissed and made up. <laughs> That's nice. That's a, it's a great story, actually. Yeah, that is a great story. Um, sadly, on my end, I, I hate to say this, I think we're, we're running out of time here. Okay. Um, we only, only had a couple more questions. questions. You just want to ask one more. That'd be fun. Um, okay. Um, let me just see. We had a, a few more here, and I do apologize for that. Um, uh, I guess filmmakers you're a fan probably people would be interested, Brian. What filmmakers you're a fan of uh, that are working today? Uh, that the films you enjoy, you see their name attached, and you know it's, it's something you're typically going to enjoy uh, as far as quality. I, I will always see um, a Coen Brothers movie. Yes. Uh, I don't care if it's you know, uh, you know, even if it's a somewhat obscure Jewish comedy like uh, <laughs> that. Yes. Uh, whatever they do. Uh, is always interesting to watch, uh, and sometimes it's absolutely fantastic, uh, as you know, so many of their films have been. And True Grit is the latest example where they 
you know, they just showed that a classically filmed uh, Western story, um, you know, can still work today. I'm sorry, my phone is... Okay. Just, <laughs> hey, Dennis. Um, I, I got your message, and I've been, in, I've been doing a podcast since 8 o'clock. Can I call you back? In a, and they're winding it up now. Can I call you back in five minutes? Okay, bye. <laughs> that is my producing partner, Dennis Duckwall, uh, and we're involved in a couple of things that uh, we're trying to get uh, you know, down the slipway uh, and properly launched, uh, and uh, we're, we're going to be meeting later today. Um, but sorry, give me your your sorry question again. What was uh, it? Yes, uh, what filmmakers working today? Do you well, are you kind of of Yes, obviously, yeah. True Grit being a, an example of, uh, of of them, you know, rebooting the western uh, and. The, uh, very successfully, and I think you know, we'll see what happens with the Academy Awards. But you know, I don't you know, think they necessarily. You know, uh, what is a best film? What is a best director? Yeah, you know, so point. many. Yeah, I mean, how, how, I mean, is is an orange a, a better fruit than an apple? Uh, so that, that's my uh, attitude. Mm-hmm. Though I'm personally into raspberries. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, look, I, I look obviously Quentin Tarantino. Anything he does, uh, uh, anything Edgar Wright does. Nice. Uh, yeah, I just I, I, it, I occasionally correspond with Edgar Wright, uh, and uh, I just absolutely loved uh, uh, you know, Scott Pilgrim versus the World. Uh, Me too. You either love it or hate it, I guess, or, yes. or ignore it, which unfortunately <laughs> too many people did. Um, but I said you know, to Edgar, uh, please make a film a year for the rest of my life. Yes. Uh, and he said, okay, I'll try. <laughs> but uh, he, he absolutely, uh, he, he really you know, lives, breathes, uh, uh, just celluloid runs in his veins or I, I suppose it's pixels these days but uh, uh, he is the, the a consummate cinema artist in terms of popular culture and popular taste and he, yeah, I, I consider uh, Scott Pilgrim to be a one of those rare, truly perfect films of, it, uh, of its own kind uh, it, it's, well, it, it's a Chagall, it's a, it's a Picasso of, uh, I mean and there can be many other Picassos you could enjoy, many other Chagalls. I'm more of a Chagall man myself. Uh, but uh, and I, you know, I've said that Quentin is the Chagall of of genre cinema. Um, ever, anything he makes, even the ones that that don't seem to appeal as much as others, like let's say Jackie Brown, um, they yeah you know, uh, they yeah you know, they are a, a unique. A piece of art from a great practitioner. Uh, so, uh, other directors, other directors. Well, I mean, Danny Boyle. Danny Boyle continues to surprise uh, with you know overcoming new challenges. I think 127 Hours was uh, a really you know it, it it could have been disastrously boring. Um, and, and and yet it was totally engrossing, and you know, obviously James Franco's performance is, is fantastic. But 
you know, it, when you look at Slumdog Millionaire and you look at, uh, yeah, 127 Hours, you're definitely, you, you know, you know, this guy is going to always deliver something interesting. Uh, he, he stumbled a bit with, the, you know, the DiCaprio, the, the, you know, movie, the, what was that called? I forget. The, uh, the, beach. the second movie. Yeah, the Beach. Uh, the Beach, The Beach, that's right. Um, but I think, you know, he's, he's, everything is interesting that he does. And uh, that, that's really all I ask of any filmmaker. Uh, hold my attention. Uh, take me into your world. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's, that's what I do. My world is a little strange. Uh, <laughs> I tend to, yes, to both celebrate and satirize cliches uh, and sometimes people don't sort of get that. They just think, oh, it's full of cliches. Well, you know, actually sometimes, you know, if you have to make one of these movies that they, they ask you to make that is full of cliches, well, let's have a little bit of fun with them. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and the reason the cliches, you know, endure is that, you know, people like them. <laughs> people yeah. are comfortable with them. Uh, yes. Um, but let me think, is there another filmmaker? I mean, there are so many that I, you know, that I, I like. Um, uh, but obviously, uh, you know, um, you know, Park in, 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 uh, in Korea. I mean, Old oh, Boy, yeah. uh, you know, uh, really great stuff. Yeah. Uh, so Korea is, it, it will, a, a, Asian cinema as a whole is really producing some fantastic stuff. I can't quite conjure the name uh, of the director of The Good, The Bad, and The Weird right now. Kim Ji-Woon. Kim Ji, yes, yes. Uh, great stuff. And the, and, and the director of um, Chaser. The original. Oh yes, yes. I can't think of his name either. Yeah, yeah. Um, but look, there are some great filmmakers all over the world, and I keep scouring the shelves to find them. Yes, indeed. Brian, I hate to do it, but we're going to have to cut the interview off, obviously. But I want to say uh, thank you so much for being on our oh, show. If my you, pleasure. As you know, I hate a chat. Yeah. yeah. If you if you would like any time in the future to come back on the show and we could do a part two of the interview, we would be totally uh, flattered yeah. by that. That would be great yeah. to have you back on. When you feel your your listeners are are ready for more, just send me an email, and wherever I am in the world, I'm sure we can connect up via Skype. Oh yeah, thank, thank you. you for your interest, and I I, I really appreciate it. And uh, um, yeah, uh, my latest trailer from Hell is on this week. Yes, uh, and uh, you know, um, and to all you would be filmmakers out there, you know, never give up, never surrender. Um, try and follow your muse. Um, yeah. The thing about the new technology, uh, it has democratized the business. You can make a film on your cell phone. Yeah. Uh, uh, and at least you can get the practice. And that's the important thing. Indeed. Uh, and you get the satisfaction of you know, telling a story with a camera, which wasn't available to people without money back in my early day getting started. Uh, now you can make a demonstration of your talents uh, yeah, you know, with you know, with no money at all. Yes, indeed. I, sorry, I, I did want to direct. I just before we forget, I wanted to also direct everyone to, of course, filmindustrybloggers.com. It's a fascinating site with people that, uh, in all facets of the industry, that blog about uh, things pertaining to film. And, and as uh, Brian said, he's the genre director there. 
Um, and I also want to say, Brian, I do apologize for having to uh, to cut it off, but I can't convey to you how happy I am and, and what a highlight this is for me and for Rick because, like I said, when we started doing this show, I said to him when, when you'd first said, you know, you'd be happy to do an interview, I said to Rick, I said, Rick, did you ever think that you know we'd be interviewing a guy whose films we just adore on our show? He's going to be talking to us. <laughs> so I really want to, th- you know, what a, what a highlight this is for us. Well, I, I thank you. And, uh, you know, if, uh, any of your ins- your your listeners you know want to see stunt rock uh, on a big screen uh, they just have to you know we, we have a print and uh, we we take bookings so oh, nice. Uh, nice. They, they should get that if you have a retro theater uh, in your the equivalent of let's say the new beverly in los angeles if you have that kind of theater that uh, that does put on either midnight shows or does retrospectives uh then you know they just need to be in touch and we can we can come to some arrangement about stunt rock, which is a a, a wonderful group experience. It needs to be seen with a hundred people. Indeed. Who I, I find at every screening seem to go bananas. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> so uh, okay. So we'll uh, we'll say uh, adios, Brian. I appreciate it again. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll be in touch. Very much, both of you, and uh, I I appreciate your enthusiasm. Right, thanks. Well, thank you, and adios. Okay. Bye bye. Thanks for listening. You can find the gentleman at ggtmc.com. You can call the gentleman at 206-666-5207. And you can email the gentleman at midnightcinema at gmail.com. Thank you.